Joel Ray's wife gently raised the side of the portiere and entered. She found the two sisters in the midst of a seemingly interminable discussion of some domestic odyssey. Not daring to interrupt it, she passed on into the inner room where Xue Baochai, dressed in workaday clothes, her hair unadorned and twisted in a knot on top of her head, sat with her maid, Oriel, over a little table towards the back of the cabin, tracing a pattern for her embroidery. Seeing Joel Ray's wife enter, she laid down her tracing brush, turned towards her with a smile, and invited her to sit with them. another exciting installation of Rereading the Stone. I'm your host, Kevin Wilson, joined as always by William Jones. Will, how's it going today? Hi everyone. It's going well. Yeah, it's uh, an absolutely miserable day here in Hong Kong, so a great time to be uh, sat inside uh, dealing with chapter seven. Yes, chapter seven. How are things in the your your neck of the woods? You know, the, the Californian heat is subsiding um ever so slightly um i'm looking forward to the winter still um sequestered in my humble abode waiting out basically a vaccination for this um uh, virus ravaging the countryside yeah well i mean when you're when you're locked down when you're stuck inside what else is there to do apart from read so yeah exactly and and, you know maybe i say this every week but i really enjoyed this chapter a lot (laughs) yeah yeah me too so this this is chapter seven and you know We've organized this podcast in terms of, uh, you know, each episode is dedicated to a chapter or part of a chapter. Um, And and I think part of that was due to convenience, but it's a natural kind of way to to chunk the text. But actually, after like experiencing this chapter, the chapter form in this novel, it really is important. And it really makes sense to treat each chapter uh, as its own almost self-enclosed unit. I've been thinking a lot about every chapter is a kind of a dream and all the symbols uh, that constitute the entirety of the novel are reconstituted in every chapter as if, you know, it's it's almost like a serial composition and uh, the notes are arranged in different places. But simply by activating all the uh, all the units, suddenly you have the whole um, the whole piece, the whole composition at every moment. Okay, and are you going to are you going to give us a, a bit of an explanation of that as we go through the chapters today? Yeah, yeah. So this is definitely, you know, I'm kind of thinking a lot about um, the idea of self-containment, of totality, and how that relates to aesthetics and and desire and, and forms of desire and forms of appearance. I actually, I wanted to maybe, uh, before we like really 
delve into the text. I've been doing some kind of theoretical reading in the background, and I don't want to spend too much time on this, but I kind of wanted to um, give a flavor for uh, how you can uh, how you can apply some kind of like high theory to um, something as concrete as this novel. There's a famous short essay by Georgie Bataille. It's only five pages long. The English collection is entitled, um, it's, it's part of a book entitled uh, Visions of Excess. And so if you know about Bataille, he's all about, uh, he, he has this, he's treating the, the relationship between uh, essence and excess and this kind of dialectical process uh, where uh, form and appearance and words are all yep. interacting in different ways. And he has this really uh, provocative um, kind of colorful uh, essay entitled The Language of Flowers. We don't really even have time to fully okay. um, analyze it. It'll take an, an episode unto itself, right? But I wanted to, um, I pulled mm -hmm. out a few key passages that I wanted to highlight because I, I think they would, uh, I have kind of like a grand theory for this, um, this chapter. And I might even write an essay, especially on this chapter. Um, and so I, I want to talk a lot about the meaning of flowers Flowers as a form of symbols, yep. as a form of representation. So let me find these kind of these these key uh, quotes from this Bataille essay that we can like maybe just pass over in silence. But maybe I think they're very um, suggestive quotes, and so we we don't really have to entirely um, uh, flesh out their their meaning. So basically, Bataille is talking about you know why are flowers beautiful? Why are they universally associated with love and romance? And he's trying to figure out the basically the connection between these natural forms and our social forms because he doesn't want to treat, or I guess he doesn't want to treat love as entirely a, um, a, a purely natural phenomenon. The quote reads, uh, love can be posited from the outset as a natural function of the flower. The symbolic quality would be due to a distinct property and not to an appearance that mysteriously strikes the human sensibility. Therefore, it would only have a purely subjective value. Men have linked the brilliance of flowers to their amorous emotions because, on either side, it is a question of phenomena that precede fertilization. Uh, so he's talking about, you know, like sexuality, like the vegetable sense, but also in the, in the human and animal sense. Um, the role given to symbols in psychoanalytic interpretations, moreover, would corroborate an explanation of this type. In fact, it is almost always an accidental parallel that accounts for the origin of substitutions in dreams. Among other things, the value given to pointed or hollowed out objects is fairly well known. And we've, we've discussed actually in previous episodes how uh, like Freudian interpretation deals with um, the difference between manifest and latent dream content and how the connection isn't entirely arbitrary, but does in fact, you know, uh, hinges on these accidental parallels, these fortuitous connections. But then Pataille goes on. In this way, one quickly dismisses the opinion that external forms, whether seductive or horrible, reveal certain crucial resolutions in all phenomena, which human resolutions would only amplify. Thus, there would be good reason to renounce immediately the possibility of replacing the word with the appearance as an element of philosophical analysis. It would be easy to show that only the word allows one to consider the characteristics of things that determine a relative situation. 
Nevertheless, the appearance would introduce the decisive values of things. And so it gets kind of obscure there, but he, he's really trying to, um, one way that we can uh, kind of concretize this, this conversation as we, as we go forward is to think about, um, in this chapter, these, these artificial flowers are going to play a really prominent part in the story. And so the question I would pose after reading this Pattaya essay is, you know, do artificial flowers have real roots? You know, and this gets back to our question of uh, Jia and Jen and the question of the interplay between reality and fiction that we've been really um, kind of uh, dwelling upon. Um, and, and so Pattaya goes on a little bit. The flower is betrayed by the fragility of its corolla. Thus, far from answering the demands of human ideas, it is a sign of their failure. In fact, after a very short period of glory, the marvelous corolla rots indecently in the sun, lust becoming, for a plant, a garish withering, risen from the stench of the manure pile, which is another symbol that's going to emerge later in this chapter. Even though it seemed for a moment to have escaped it, in a flight of angelic and lyrical purity, the flower seems to relapse, relapse abruptly to its original squalor. Um, for flowers do not age honestly like hmm. leaves, which lose nothing of their beauty even after they have died. And that's another kind of like, like don't tell, don't tell Dayu. The fate of the flower is, yeah. is tragic, and that tragedy is inscribed in, in nature itself. Or uh, it's inscribed mm -hmm. in the, the symbolic um, association between, you, you see how there's different ways to kind of to play this game. Um, but nothing contributes more strongly to the peace in one's heart and to the lifting of one's spirits as well as to one's loftier notions of justice and rectitude than the spectacle of fields and forests, along with the tiniest parts of the plant, which sometimes manifest a veritable architectural order, contributing to the general impression of correctness. No crack, it seems, conspicuously troubles the decisive harmony of vegetal nature. Flowers themselves, lost in the immense movement from earth to sky, are reduced to this epistotic role, to a diversion, moreover, that is apparently misunderstood. They can only contribute by breaking the monotony to the inevitable seductiveness produced by the general thrust from low to high. And in order to destroy this favorable impression, nothing less is necessary than the impossible and fantastic vision of roots swarming under the surface of the soil, nauseating and naked like vermin. Roots, in fact, represent the perfect counterpart to the visible parts of a plant. While the visible parts are nobly elevated, the ignoble and sticky roots wallow in the ground, loving rottenness just as leaves love light. Uh, there is reason to note, moreover, that the incontestable moral value of the term base conforms to this systematic interpretation of the meaning of roots. What is evil is necessarily represented among movements by a movement from high to low. And it goes on. It's really, um, it's a really great uh, essay. It's not very long. I would definitely um, like assign it in a class or something. It's provocative, and the, the actual material of the essay uh, diverges sharply from what you might expect with uh, such an innocuous title as uh, "The Language of Flowers." Um, yeah. If we have that in the back of our head, I think what happens in this chapter, if we conceive of it as this coherent whole, will take on new levels of meaning. Lately, in my reading of this novel, I've become completely ushing pilled I'm like, I'm really leaning into the yeah. symbolic interpretation of everything, looking for double meanings, looking for uh, no interpretation is over-interpretation. 
<laughs> For everyone's benefit, do you want to go into just exactly what uh, Wu Xiang means in this? Oh right, right. So the 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 five uh, the five phases, yeah. right? Um, basically, now every time I see like uh, something related to wood, something related to water, something related to fire or metal, I automatically uh, I, I take note. What happens though is that yeah, there's there's so much of this material just naturally due to the nature of um, of language, and also due to the nature of the the, the character system where every every pictograph is potentially a sign a clue and not just an arbitrary yeah. uh, uh symbol right a sort of conveyor of meaning and so i've been kind of um uh experimenting with with that kind of analysis and so we'll see what happens maybe you have to like pull nice. me back from the edge <laughs> i'll let you know if you're going like into anything too esoteric and far-fetched I was going to say, just for everyone's benefit, I can do the recap of, of, of how we got to here and what's going to happen in today's episode. So in the previous chapter, we had the final resolution of our kind of protagonist, Jia Baoyu, the 13-year-old the boy born with the stone in his mouth. We have the final resolution of his dream sequence in chapter five, which is a dream sequence all, all about many things, but predominantly about sexual awakening. And in chapter six, the author tells us that it is in fact a wet dream, you know. So he has in fact ejaculated during this dream. His uh, his maid discovers this, and they have a laugh about it, and then decide to enter into a sexual relationship. Uh, and then they kind of leave it there. And the remainder of the chapter deals with much more kind of ordinary workaday material things, uh, specifically a very distant branch of our central household the Wang family, who are poor peasants living near Beijing. And because they're running low on money uh, and in a bit of a tight spot, they decide to go and visit their rich relatives uh, and ask for you know, a bit of benevolence. Uh, and so this task falls on the shoulders of one Granny Liu, Liu Lala, and her grandson, Banar. Uh, and it's the story of them visiting, visiting the, the household of the, of the Jia clan in in Beijing, and her efforts, I suppose, to to get an audience in front of Wang Xifeng, who is Peppercorn Feng, one of the kind of most important women in the household, the one responsible for kind of managing household affairs, uh, which she eventually does, and she gets 20 tails of silver, which is more than enough to kind of see them through difficult times. And in the whole chapter, she's being kind of chaperoned by uh, the character Zhou Rei's wife, whose real name we never really learn, but who is very important in the chapter because she acts as this kind of intermediary between the socially very low kind of peasant Granny Liu and the the higher classes inside the mansion. And so at the beginning of this chapter, Zhou Rei's wife has just finished up dealing with Granny Liu and she's giving her report to Lady Wang, who's one of the, the kind of matriarchs of the household and the mother of Jia Baoyu, our you know, central character. And when she's giving this kind of report of uh, Granny Liu, etc. Aunt Xue, who is the sister of Lady Wang and the mother of Xue Baochai, one of the girls who's at the center of the, the kind of love triangle between Jia Baoyu, our central character, Lin Daiyu, and Xue Baochai. So Aunt Xue, the, the sister of Lady Wang, says, oh, I have these 12 artificial flowers. Could you, Zhou Rei's wife, one of the servants, Go around the household and distribute them to various uh, of the of the kind of noble noble women. Uh, so initially, we follow her doing that. 
She has a conversation with Xue Baochai about her illness. She finds Wang Xifeng having what we might call an afternoon delight with her husband, Jia Lian. In the title of the chapter, it's referred to as pursuing night sports by day. Uh, but anyway, so they're, they're having sex in the afternoon. Um, and um, then in the later part of the chapter, Wang Xifeng, uh, who, as I mentioned earlier, is kind of responsible for managing the household, goes next door to the household of the other branch of the Jia clan uh, to spend the day with them. And she brings Jia Baoyu with her. Now, Jia Baoyu gets to meet his cousin, Qin Zhong, a boy of about the same age. And they immediately become very close friends and they spend the day together. And then when it comes time to leave and return home in the evening, one of the household servants, old Zhao, causes quite a ruckus and, uh, and he reveals some secrets about the family uh, during this ruckus. So again, in this chapter, it's, it's very, it's not, the, the content is not kind of dream related. It's not kind of surreal at all. It's again, very like, you know, day-to-day ordinary household stuff. The servant is going around doing kind of ordinary chores and we see various members of the household sitting around doing the kind of ordinary things that they would do on a, on a kind of day-to-day basis. And then, yeah, so, so, so the, on the face of it, the content of this chapter is nothing particularly unusual. But I think that there's a lot of symbolic importance attached to the things that do happen in the chapter. Uh, and I think that that's uh, something that you feel quite strongly, right, Kevin? I, um, I think I'll be able to make my case. Uh, yeah. that that there is um, enough material here that it seems like very little of it could have been left entirely to chance. And so maybe if this is a dream, it's, you know, its manifest content is more uh, banal. But sometimes I think the latent content of the dream does speak volumes. Um, yeah. There is a nice parallel between this chapter and the previous chapter mm-hmm. where in each chapter, uh, Joe Ray's wife is kind of this conduit and, and she's the, the means to um, take us a, a around the establishment and her being this means um, is, is again uh, a product of her um, of her status her relatively lower status within the um, the hierarchy the household yeah yeah and what's interesting is that we're also introduced to Jure's daughter who actually is um, undergoing a pretty significant uh, life event, life tragedy. Her husband, who we've met yeah. before, uh, Lung Zixing, is, uh has been arrested yeah. and is at risk of being deported, essentially, back to his, his town, uh, his hometown in the south. But this very yeah. important uh, matter is only addressed in passing while Joe Ray is tasked yeah. with delivering these fake flowers. Which is a very, I think, a very clear indication yeah. of her relatively lower status. That her delivering mm. flowers uh, takes uh, precedence over. It's more important, yeah. Her son-in-law's um, being arrested, effectively. Yeah, possible arrest. Yeah, 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 exactly. So, should we get kind of, should we kind of dive into the actual content of it? I kind of, in my head, I've divided this chapter into like two movements, right? One of them is the movement of Jorei's wife about the household. And the, and the second half of the chapter is um, the movement of Wang Shifeng and uh, Jia Baoyu uh, to visit the Ningguo compound. And I think that's a good way of dividing it. 
so in the in the very beginning of the chapter, Jorei's wife has just finished seeing off Granny Liu mm -hmm. after you know showing her around for half a day, and she goes to Lady Wang to report. Uh, and as she approaches Lady Wang's chambers, she sees one of her one of Lady Wang's servants sitting outside, and there's a, a moment that that seems kind of fairly insignificant, but I just want to touch on because it was interesting to me. The servant girl, Golden, she sees Jorei's wife, and she immediately understands that Jorei has come here to deliver some kind of message. And so to indicate to her where Lady Wang is, she does this thing of kind of pouting her lips and turning her head to indicate in a particular direction. So her lips are acting as kind of the pointer to say, they're in there, she's, yeah. in, she's inside. Yeah. Now, a couple of things. Firstly, this is not a gesture that we have a kind of natural word for in English. So in the Hawks translation, it says, basically, she indicated that her mistress was inside by turning her chin towards the house and shooting out her lips. But what's really interesting is that in the Chinese, there is a, there is a specific term for this, which is nu zuiar, or nu zuiar, basically. Uh, which is, yeah, it's like two, three characters, essentially. Um, which was kind of fascinating to me because it does, it shows how there are some things which are really not easily translatable. It's, it's such an incredibly precise term. Um, but then kind of talking about the meaning of it, um, my initial impression was that this is a gesture of considerable sort of nonchalance, you know, or, or kind of something of reflection of the comparative status between uh, Jorei's wife and Golden, the maid. Mm -hmm. Because you think that perhaps if Jorei's wife was of a higher social status, she might not simply just kind of go, you know, in English, it's almost like sort of nodding your head in a particular direction to indicate someone is, is, is somewhere. It seems like a very kind of casual uh, and not, not necessarily disrespectful gesture, but, but certainly not necessarily respectful. However, I then got to talking with a couple of different people about this because I was sort of fascinated by it. And certainly in some cultures, pointing with the finger is actually quite rude, you know? Uh, and so using other forms of pointing is a bit more common. So uh, in some cultures, um, pointing, with the, pointing with the lips is actually um, the most common way of pointing. And it's very, very uncommon to, to kind of use your fingers to indicate something. So this was just something that I thought was interesting to remark upon as we pass it by, because it's just kind of brushed over in the text. But I would be interested to know kind of what your uh, impression of that gesture is. I also noted it, and I was wondering how to interpret it. It did seem as, uh, again, it, an indication of uh, Joe Ray's um, relatively lower status within the, the hierarchy of the household. Yeah, I think that that is true. I think that's that's about right, isn't it? Um, clearly, clearly, the author I think has thought kind of long and hard about how to show in all of these many different ways um, things like that, small little markers of class distinction, and has kind of sprinkled them all the way through the text. And, and so you can kind of pick up on them; they're little like nuggets of of, uh, of gold. So I guess before um, before getting the chance to speak to Lady Wang and uh, Aunt Xue, uh, Jorei's wife first speaks to um, Xue Baochai, as we mentioned before, one of the one of the the three people that this at, you know at the heart of this central love triangle, and they have a, a you know a kind of quick discussion about how Baochai has this recurrent illness, and um, 
how she's had it for a long time and there's only one cure that she's found that's really been able to you know actually uh make any difference to it and it's this kind of ludicrously complicated recipe yes um, yes or preparation uh that a a kind of taoist a taoist monk recommended right this taoist monk he he said the usual medicines wouldn't do any good and he gave us a prescription supposed to have been handed down from the immortals of the islands. Uh, he also gave us a packet of powder with a very unusual fragrance, which he said was to be used as the base. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then there's a very uh, detailed description of uh, the process by which um, the medicine was made. My first reaction to this was, okay, I mean, this is... I almost felt bad for the characters because, I mean, this is obvious. I'm going to say this is clear pseudoscience, right? This is, if you really delve into the description, it does have a, uh, a patently ludicrous um, character to it if it's read yeah. uh, on the strictly um, material level. But I don't think the author entirely, and actually you, you can go back and you can find um, like Qing dynastic medical uh, documents that do attest to um to basically pills and elixirs that are comparable to the one being referenced here uh so maybe i'll I'll give some of the uh the concrete details before uh delving into a more interpretive mode Uh, yeah so so you get you gather together four different kinds of flowers uh, yeah to begin with and so you start with uh peony i think by mudan mudan hua um, mm-hmm. And this is the peony buds that come forth in spring, right? Yes, the spring flowering white tree peony to read from the hawks. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then you, so you need twelve ounces of that. Then you need twelve yeah. ounces of stamens of the summer flowering white water lily, and then twelve yeah. ounces of stamens of the autumn flowering white locust. And finally, 12 ounces of stamens of the winter flowering white plum. And then you dry them all in one day, but it has to be on on a specific day. It has to be on the day of the spring equinox, again, a liminal moment, Mm -hmm. um, of the year immediately following the year you pick them. And then you must take 12 drams of rainwater that fell on the rain days in the second month. And at this point, Joe Ray's wife uh, actually bursts into laughter. And so it really is ludicrous. And, And yet, if we look at it closely... You can see the the kind of the the naturalistic logic there, where everything's twelve is clearly a multiple associated with the seasons. We have twelve months in the year. Uh, every season is yeah. represented. Um, they're all white flowers. Uh, and then later, it said you have to uh, you have to mix it with the rainwater, which is definitely a detail that I was thinking of. Um, I mean, water. I, I just naturally want to associate with a. Uh, especially rainwater, these kind of, shall we call them celestial tears, I want to associate with Lindayu. And so here we have yeah. um, Lindayu's um, kind of counterpart, if not opposition, uh, Shri Balachai, and she is, mm-hmm. is, she's consuming these, um, these celestial tears. And I was trying to think of the, this weird, um, this is where I've become full uh, wuxing pilled, where I'm thinking like, wow, the, yeah. the, this can't be a coincidence, right? There's layer upon layer of meaning. Um, yeah. But then again, you know, how, how would you prove this scientifically? It's very difficult. And so um, mm-hmm. 
there is kind of a science to literary interpretation, but it it is kind of in the space that's almost like a, a craft or an art, an art of interpretation, an art of interpreting art. And the very fact that you have to take the uh, the concoction and you have to bury it among the flowers. The Taoist monk is very explicit about that. But again, if you think mm-hmm. about you know burying it among the flowers, you have uh, it's interesting. You have a very much uh, at least a kind of naturalistic form of thinking where clearly, according to this like cosmological system, it's taken the logic uh, of nature and it's tried to apply it in, in a different realm. Maybe this is of anthropological significance, or maybe it's the author specifically um, trying to use these these real phenomena as symbols for his own meaning. Or it might be simply a combination of these things. That's how I'm trying to kind of present my interpretation without it seeming too uh, definitive. Does that make sense? Do you, do you think do you think that this that the author is drawing from a genuine recipe for a medicine, uh, or is this something entirely of his own creation? Uh, yeah. So, what is the name in, in the Hawks translation? Because Jore asks, uh, "What's the name of this?" Yeah. The Hawks calls it cold fragrance pills. And this yeah. is actually one of the few times that he sticks very closely to the the genuine Chinese, which in, in Chinese is Long Xiang Wan. Exactly, yeah. Literally, yeah, cold fragrance. Which pills. does th- it does seem to be attested to in um, extant manuals uh, from mm-hmm. this period and maybe from earlier as well. And so that really that kind of adds another uh, another layer to the mystery. My sense is that the author is very consciously using this this material as a as a kind of symbolic device to have us kind of slow down and uh, reflect upon Sri Chai as a character um, and, and why she would be inclined to to perform these operations and also why the reason why the flowers are distributed to all the other girls except her right so these flowers were originally intended for her uh, but she simply is not inclined toward this kind of ornamentation and so we have Lin Dayu, who we like identify as a flower in some capacity, a jade and a flower, mm-hmm. right? And here we have uh, Sri Bao Chai, who is herself a, a precious metal, a precious hairpin, right? Uh, but who mm-hmm. um, has a kind of phobia toward even the representation of flowers, because these aren't real flowers. These are fake flowers uh, crafted in the most uh, fashionable way possible by some kind of city merchant yeah and they've been gifted to the family i think it goes to to say that they are actually even crafted in the imperial palace so okay this is something from 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 the palace itself but there's one thing i wanted to just also raise briefly as we go through here again it's a slightly throwaway line in the hawks when she when shuabao chai is talking about why this medicine is so difficult to procure in the Hawks, she says, it's the timing involved that is so difficult. But in the Chinese, this is rendered, which is to say, the most difficult thing about it is the idea of mm. meaning something like kind of uh, luck or coincidence or, or fortuity, yes, yes. something along those lines. The reason I mention this is because it crops up several times throughout this chapter in different contexts. And I think the author is kind of telegraphing to us the importance of this notion of kerchow, of fortuitousness, of, of um, things happening almost as if kind of by luck or by good fortune. Right. So the way that it's used in this immediate context here is, is 
particularly in relation to the the timing of this rain. You know, as you mentioned, you can only use the rain that falls on a particular day. And if no rain falls that day, well, then you have to wait until the next year to come around uh, the same day. And, you know, fortuitously, or fortunately, I suppose, for um, Baochai, uh, it does fall the first year they try. So it only takes a couple of years to make up this medicine, whereas it could, you know, it could take 10 years if you're unlucky or, you know, far longer anyway. The other context in which uh, this Kerchow idea comes up in this chapter is later on when Jorei's wife is um, distributing flowers. It's used by, I believe, one of the three sisters, that, um, daughters of the of the Rong household. The one who, um, as we'll see, is contemplating shaving her, her head and becoming a nun. Yeah. Uh, and she says, fortunately, you just showed up with these flowers. And she uses the same term, Kerchow. Uh, and then finally, you may remember in in the previous chapter when uh, Jia Baoyu decides to take a nap and during this nap has this dream sequence, he does so in the bedchamber of Qin Shi. And Qin Shi mentions that he has a brother who is about Baoyu's age, uh, but unfortunately they can't meet at the moment because he's not there. Um, anyway, in this chapter when Wang Xifeng and Jia Baoyu go round to the Ning household. It turns out that Qin Shi's brother, Qin Zhong, the boy of about Baoyu's age, is there. And the way that Qin Shi mentions this is by using this same term, Ke Chiao. Mm. Fortunately, my brother is here. And I think in each of these cases, perhaps what the author is trying to convey is not merely like, not merely that this is just a, uh, Mere, a kind of happy coincidence, but that there is some greater symbolic or just fundamental importance to these fortunate things. And that reminds me a lot of Jia Yutun's kind of distinction between the three kinds of people, where the, the, the supposedly the good people corresponded with the good season. So maybe it's the same kind of um, fortuitous meeting of, um, of time and circumstance. Mm -hmm. I think that's right, yeah. Okay, so I guess... we. It, it's time now to to go with uh, Joe Ray's wife on her uh, flower delivery uh, service. So let's see here. On the way to uh, delivering the first flower, uh, again in passing, she comes upon um, the uh, the girl formerly known as Inglian Lotus, yeah, uh, who is now designated as uh, Caltrop. Yeah, um, or Xiangling. Uh, Xiangling, yeah. And there's a kind of a very um, a very short scene where they uh, she asks uh, Xiangling, "What do you remember of where are you from? How old are you?" And it seems clear that she remembers um, nothing of her of her past life that we uh, yeah. got a glimpse of in chapter one. And and so just just as a reminder, right at the beginning of the book, we're introduced to the character uh, Zhen Shiyin, who is a kind of kind of comfortably well off intellectual in I believe in Nanjing. I forget now off the top of my head, but in a, in another city anyway, uh, another great city in the in the in the empire. And he has only one child, a young daughter, uh, Yinglian. And yeah, at this this liminal moment, I think it's. Um, Chinese New Year, I forget exactly. She and one of their servants are out looking at the kind of display of lanterns in the nighttime. 
and the servant who's supposed to be looking after her puts her down on a step for a moment to go to have a pee. And when he comes back from doing his business, she has disappeared. And he searches all night long but can't find her. Uh, and we later find that she has been taken into slavery. And and then, yeah, uh, two different men try to purchase her as a slave. It, one of them wants to to marry her and the other wants to have her as a slave. Sadly for the man who wants to marry her, uh, he ends up killed. Uh, and the man that does eventually buy her is one of the sons of the Shuya household, which is how she came to be a servant. The the brother of Shri Bao Chai. Oh, Shri Pan, exactly. Yep. A very dissolute, bad young man. Who's very much the opposite of Shri Bao Chai, who's all about uh, ritual propriety, and he is very um, taken toward criminal and excessive acts. Yep. Lasciviousness and his own pleasure and, and so on and so forth. For sure, for sure. So she's tr- uh, she has traded in the name of a flower for the name of another flower. Ying Lian being here a kind of lotus. That first character, Ying, is most commonly thought of as like a, a term for for kind of heroic, but it can also mean kind of petals, flowers. And I think that's the term that it's, that's the way that it's to be understood here. And then her, her, her new name is Xiangling, uh, a water caldrop or like water chestnut. Is that a demotion, you think? <laughs> I'm, I'm not really sure. I, I wonder if it's... The thing about caldrops is, um, well, I mean, if you've been listening to paying attention to the news, uh, you may have come across the word caltrop in a completely different context, specifically as a way to puncture car tires. Uh, so caltrops are, are kind of an unusual geometric shape, basically comprising several metal spikes welded or fused together in such a way that if you scatter them on the ground, at least one spike will always be pointing upwards. So you can scatter them on the ground, and if a car drives over them, its tires will be burst. Now, why do they share a name? The reason is that the seeds of the caltrop very much resemble the kind of caltrop that you can cast on the ground to, to uh, yeah, to, to pop car tires. And I wonder if it's in some way representing, like a possibly a spikiness about her character that we're going to see. I'm, uh, I'm not, in, I'm not sure entirely. That's that's speculation to a, to to a degree. And you know, when we speak about like slavery. I wonder whether there's a sense in which all of these, um, the lower characters, all of the maids, uh, in some sense, would, by modern standards, be classifiable as slaves. This gets into kind of a, a kind of an interesting but difficult uh, anthropological question: whether there are like certain necessary and sufficient conditions for for the category slave. But my sense is that the the Jia family has the uh, power of life and death over most of the um, more subordinated um, servant figures. And that's a pretty yeah. good proxy, if nothing else, for um, for uh, de facto slavery. And I think also, you know, that they are capable of being, I suppose, traded like, you know, you have humans being capable of being traded as, as, as assets, you know. And, and so... Uh, it certainly presents as being a good deal less uh, physically brutal than some other forms of slavery that I guess many people would be more familiar with. Yes. For example, in the American context or or in 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 I guess a kind of like European colonial one. But I think it's still an appropriate term to use in the in this in this way. And you see uh, the term slave used a lot in the Chinese literature interpreting um, this novel and, and a lot of. Um historical yeah. fiction, which itself yeah. may or may not be an artifact of basically of um, 
the prominence of Marxism or certain forms of Marxism in mainland China. And so there oh, is yeah, a, an adherence to a kind of uh, traditional like stage theory of uh, the, the progress of society. Yeah, either genuinely, genuinely Marxist interpretation or a sort of performative Marxism, because right. that is, at least on paper, the, the um, prevailing political theory underpinning the, the present Chinese state. And there is a history of the Soviet Union and the um, educational overlap and inheriting certain ideological traditions from that. Um, but then again, you know, sometimes there's accidental convergence with the truth. Uh, and there is a certain truth to, yeah, simply referring to um, the maids as maids, I, I think can be somewhat dehistoricizing. Yeah. Especially after we've seen another good proxy would be uh, Jabao Yu's sexual access to um, his maid. Uh, Aroma. Uh, yeah. Hua Aroma. And so I kind of wanted just to to point that out. Because if you simply treat the text in its own terms, I, I think a lot of this is actually lost. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, so I guess we're on our way to um, to the penthouse behind Lady Wong's house. Because recently yeah. the the Chun uh, sisters, so to speak, yeah, um, have been have been relocated. These are three of the daughters of the Rong household. I forget, are they Jia Zhong's daughters? You know. It's actually a little more complicated than that. So I think in the text, they're referred to as sisters uh, at various points. But this is sisters in a, a kind of, not in a literal sense, but it, what's the way to describe that? Okay, so you're right. They are not, in fact, sisters in the literal sense. They're the daughters of Jia Jing, Jia Zhang, and Jia Xia. So yeah, they are they're the youngest female members uh, of the the wrong branch of the Jia household, but they actually are not literally sisters. Um, exactly. They're linked in a sort of cousin, cousin-like relationship. And they've been moved away from grandmother, grandmother Jia. It's a little bit confusing in the Hawks translation because he refers to her as her old ladyship to be distinguished from her ladyship, which is Lady yeah. Wang, uh, namely yeah. Jia Baoyu's mother who is the actual, yeah. um, who's actually in charge. Mm -hmm. Whereas grandmother Ja used to be in charge, and she's kind of um, stepped down from that position of power. Yeah. So grandmother Ja Jiamu is she's still yeah this kind of uh, honorary matriarch matriarch emeritus yes. of the um, yes. of the wrong branch of the of the Jia clan basically. So she's still a very important figure within the household, and she utterly dotes on Jia Baoyu, her grandson, and because. Jia Baoyu is so close to Lin Daiyu, and because Grandmother Jia is fond of her as well, she decides the two of them are allowed to stay close at hand. Yes. But as you mentioned, the three Chun girls, Xi Chun, Tan Chun, and Ying Chun, yes. uh, are to be moved elsewhere. And so this is really interesting to me because it really feels as if this is a this physical uh, relocation has um, like deep psychological significance. I guess this is a, uh, a kind of advantage of being able to, of having a certain amount of wealth and affluence where you can really uh, like reorganize your physical space in such a way in order yeah. to like reflect your mood. I really think this is an element of the appeal of, of affluence where mm -hmm. um, your environment reflects yourself in a way that is more voluntary, more constructed. 
at least at the level of appearance. Because actually mm-hmm. what we might find is there are some certain constraints of affluence that are comparable to the uh, constraints of of poverty. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So it's on them that Joe, Joe Ray's wife calls first. And so when she enters, she finds two of them together playing Go. So Yingchun and Tan Chun are sitting by the window playing Go, you know, the game that we know is Chinese chess as well. Mm-hmm. And so kind of what do we know about this game? Do you, do you know much about it? I do not know how to play Go. Uh, have you learned? I'm sure I've been taught once upon a time, quite a long time ago. But no, I haven't played it in a long time. What I remember of it is there's one of those games that is, it's relatively easy to learn. You know, so the rules are quite simple. But actually becoming really skilled at it is, is a very kind of challenging task. That was what I recall about it. So they're playing Go. They're drinking tea in the parlor. Meanwhile, yeah. the other uh, Chun sister, Shitun, uh, she's playing with a, uh, actually a nun from, in the Hawks yeah. translation, it's Water Moon Priory. Yeah. I, I think that is fairly um, accurate as a uh, descriptor, descriptor of it. I think, again, it's it's a pretty like-for-like translation. I believe it's called Shui Yue An, I think it is. Okay. Um, uh, so yeah, literally water moon and then um, An being a, a nunnery in, in Buddhism. But he does this slightly strange thing of giving her a Latin name again, uh, Sapientia. Yes. So I suppose that, that being, you know, literally the one who knows or something, the one who has knowledge. And I can kind of see that because the, the name she's given in Chinese is Zhineng Er. Okay. So Zhineng being kind of wisdom, knowledge, and Nung being ability, talent, are of course being kind of just just indicating that it's a person's name, I suppose. And this is ironic in a sense because uh, the idea of these flowers is the idea of the flowers is you put the flowers in your hair, uh, but the nun has mm. shaved her hair and has you know yeah. um, has given up you know the the elements of life that correspond with having or being in bloom, so to speak. Yeah. And so in the text, they definitely uh, they play on these on these levels of meaning, and it really shows how um, how universal the symbol of the flower really is. And we can talk about this is what the the Pattaya essay was trying to figure out: if there is this universality, where does it lie? Where does it originate from? Is it at the level of nature or the appearance of nature, or is it somehow embedded in language? And if language is mm-hmm. different than nature, then then how does that work? Because we sometimes think of of especially of desire as being at least partly on a level of language. And so we have this this text, which has been translated and which is coming at us from hundreds of years away. Uh, and yet a lot of these um, symbols and experiences are, are highly, um, like immediately recognizable, which maybe speaks to some kind of universality of experience. And maybe also to the author's ability to really capture universal, almost allegorical or archetypal forms, which may be is part of the reason that this novel has um, succeeded to the extent it has. It's become so popular, especially in East Asia, but you know maybe um, globally as well. So after visiting the the three Chun sisters and distributing flower to them, she then moves on to the chambers of Wang Xifeng, Peppercorn Feng, the the woman we mentioned before, who has this kind of something like a managerial or overseeing role uh, within the household. And Jure's wife. I mean, in a sense, she's returning to Wang Shifang's place because she was just there a moment ago with uh, yeah. Liu Laolao, with uh, Granny Liu. And so th- there really is a sense of, what are you doing here again? 
she's kind of the the return of the repressed in some sense. Jorae's wife, you're right. She was just speaking to Wang Shifang shortly before, and now she's back again. And as she's coming in, she's waved round to a different door by one of the one of uh, Wang Shifang's maids, and so she kind of tiptoes round and she asks. Jorae's wife asks, "Is Wang Shifang taking a nap?" Because I've got something to give her, so you better wake her up if she is. And yeah, the the wet nurse just she purses her lips and shakes her head as if to say, "You you kind of don't want to go there." 